0: I'm Sam McLaren Fahey, and this is You Survived, Now What? Each week, we will hear from a survivor, learn their story, and ask the question, now what? Today, we'll be talking about chronic illness and life after an attack. I survived.
1: I survived. I survived. Now what? Uh, My name is Carolyn, and I am 38 years old, which seems really old all of a sudden, especially since I have a two year old at home and I've been married for five years now to a great guy who is in the army. And so we move around a lot and we're currently in Boston which is a super cool assignment in the army. We've been here for a couple of years. And it's good. I really am enjoying the city and I'm enjoying seeing my son grow up. I grew up in a really small town in upstate New York, which most people do not guess. Uh, It was 400 people. And as a result, I went to a very small school where there were about between 25 and 35 kids in my class, depending on the year. I would say my childhood was relatively happy at home. Uh, I enjoyed being around adults. And I enjoyed my family for the most part. But it was pretty rough socially at school, just in terms of not having a lot of other kids my age. So the biggest thing that happened was I was just picked on a lot as a kid for being fat. And this was like back in the 80s. So fat then means something very different. Different than it does now. So I would say I was pudgy or I was overweight slightly, but I got called a lot of names. Like when I was a young kid, Baby Beluga came up a lot. Butterball was a big one. Even a couple adults called me Butterball, and that was pretty obnoxious. And then I just didn't have a lot of friends. I had one really close friend, and then I was kind of accused of being snooty because I would distance myself from the people that would pick on me and bully me. So it was just really lonely. And my sister and I didn't really get along because. I wanted to hang out with her friends and she didn't want me around. I think when I was about 10, yeah, it was about 10 and a half. I told my mom that I wanted to lose weight and not be fat. You know, she, my mom's a nutritionist, so she was very skeptical of this cuz she didn't really believe in kids losing weight, but she knew I was struggling, so she was like, "Okay, you know, we'll we'll set a goal weight of like 10 or 15 pounds because I started I was about 115 pounds and I was about five feet tall, not quite five feet tall. She was like, you know, we're going to do this by having healthier snacks and, Etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And the first month or so, like I lost a couple pounds and I was really excited and I was like, okay, I can do this. And I was eating healthier. And uh, next, I would say, like three months, things started to shift and I started to lose like a pretty significant amount of weight. I think I lost like 15 pounds over the next three months. And so I was really happy. But I also, I think what my mom noticed was that I was starting to have these crazy mood swings. And she would say, like, you know, what's happening to you? Like, where's my child? And she thought that maybe I was sneaking something behind her back, like some kind of medication or, or something that was causing me to lose weight. And then at the end of like the six month period, right before I turned 11, I dropped another like 15 pounds in like the last month or so. And so I was down to like 85 pounds. So I basically lost 30 pounds in six months. And the last 15 of it, I wasn't trying anymore. I was, I like started eating donuts and drinking all the soda. And I was drinking like four to five glasses of milk with dinner and just peeing four to five times a night. And my, I was screaming at everybody and I was just having these really bad dreams, like I would start dreaming that I was disappearing, like I would turn sideways and kind of melt into the background. And my mom actually insisted that I go to the doctor for my mood swings, not actually for the weight loss, although she was concerned about that as well. We got into the doctor as a family doctor that I'd known my whole life, you know, small town, and we told him what was happening. And he he actually didn't even do any testing at all. And he said, well, I'm just listening to the story. And he made my mom leave the room once and confirm that I wasn't trying to sneak anything. And my mom came back in and he said, Well, I know that this is tough because, you know, you're concerned about her weight loss. And then I remember this really clearly, he said to her, But I have to tell you, she's never looked better. Which is a pretty messed up thing to say from a doctor's standpoint. And then in the very next breath, he said, But I don't even really need any tests to tell you that she's type 1 diabetic. My mom was furious and I was pretty pissed off too. And we walked out of there and she goes, there's no way you're diabetic. But nonetheless, he had referred me to the hospital for testing to confirm. So we went and did a glucose tolerance test. And sure enough, I, I failed it pretty miserably. And normal glucose is like between 80 and 100, let's say, ish, roughly milligrams per deciliter. And um, when I was admitted to the hospital, mine was 777. It's like one of those numbers that you never forget. I was just really scared. Like I didn't really know what was happening. And I did get some good education in the hospital, and they they talked to me about why losing weight was synonymous with diabetes and how your body basically like the keto diet like you your body goes into ketoacidosis because it can't um, actually access the sugar that you're eating so your cells can't burn the sugar and so they burn fat and as you burn up all your fat you release all this toxin all the toxins into your bloodstream and that's you're in ketoacidosis and that's actually a a lethal condition over time not to mention the weight loss and so it leads to kidney failure and stuff like that that was pretty tough I think the time in the hospital was (laughs) it it was rough I got diagnosed on July 1st of 1992 and I had just turned 11 I remember on July 4th my parents and my sister all went out to see the fireworks and they went out to like without me. They just kind of left me in the hospital by myself and I remember being at the window overlooking the field where the fireworks were going off and I was just standing there by myself and like a nurse came in and talked to me a little bit and then I had to like learn to give myself shots and that was scary. You know I started out on an orange which is pretty funny in retrospect and I was shaking so badly the first time I gave myself a shot I like scraped up my whole leg which is so funny. Anybody anytime anybody tells me oh you're so strong you could give yourself shots I would I would die if I have to give myself a shot and I'm always in my head, like, no, you'd die if you didn't have to give yourself a shot. It's like one of those things where people are like, oh, I could never do that. And I'm like, well, what's the alternative? You know, like you don't have an alternative. So I kind of became really like jaded about that where I just realized like I have to get this done because I was having these dreams about what happened, what would happen if I didn't. And so I spent that week in the hospital and At the end of the week, my sister actually went to summer camp, and my mom had previously scheduled a cruise with my grandmother, and this was scheduled, like, months in advance, and um, I remember the date coming up and, like, begging her not to go because I didn't, you know, I'd just been diagnosed, like, I didn't know what I was doing, and I didn't want to go home and just be with my dad, and, you know, my dad, like, freaks out easily, and and my mom and my sister were both like, well, you never know, grandma could die soon, which is so ridiculous, my grandmother lived another, like, three 35 years. So my mom left me to go to the Caribbean on like day six of my diagnosis. That's just something that like will probably always like alter my relationship with my mom because in general my mom was great but it's just something like that where I'm like I could never do that to my kid. hope I never do that to my kid. So that was that was kind of crazy. And then it came out of the hospital. It was just me and my dad for that first week. It's not totally my parents' fault because the doctors and the nurses in the hospital when they were doing education with my parents actually told them, they said, we want to be clear, this is her disease and she has to learn to deal with it and you can't do it for her because this disease is all dependent on self-management, which is like true to a certain degree, but for an 11 year old, that's a lot to take on. And so it just resulted in a couple years of like my parents having a lot of unspoken fear but not feeling like they could talk to me about it and so if my blood sugar went low from too much insulin they would yell at me because I wouldn't have my candy on me and just a lot of like rough communication at first because no one knew what was gonna happen and then I got back in school that fall and the people who didn't like me and who had bullied me were like oh what happened to you because all of a sudden I was skinny like really skinny but they also didn't like me because now I got snacks in class and the teachers put me at the front of the line for the cafeteria so that I could get first dibs on the food and you know kids are would just make like kind of dumb comments like what's diabetes and, and then like a bunch of people oh my grandma has has that disease like really bad and, I, and I'd be like no no she doesn't pretty sure she doesn't, but cool. I learned really quickly that there's a lot of confusion between type 1 diabetes and type 2 diabetes and that I found really frustrating and annoying that people would blame me like, oh it's because you were fat and you ate too much sugar and that's why you got diabetes. Are you gonna die like in steel magnolias and just a lot of ignorance from all sides when I was dealing with that. And then at home, at home things got a lot more tense because it was like Carolyn had one thing and she had her special diet that she had to follow exactly. And then everybody else in the household could do their own thing and do something completely different. And so it was very isolating. And I, you know, I was already pretty isolated in a town of 400 people. And so to be isolated at home was like really hard. You know, my dad would eat ice cream for dessert and sneak, like, they would hide sweets in the house where they thought I couldn't find them. So there was, like, probably some binging activity going on when I was in high school, like middle school, high school, because it was just just a lot of unspoken stuff.
0: Carolyn was just 11 years old when she was thrust into the life of chronic illness. She had to not only learn to survive alone, but she had to face the isolation that comes with illness at an age where isolation is already so prevalent feeling like an outsider in your own home is devastating. And it's even more devastating when you're at an age that society has already deemed too young for valid emotions. Carolyn was doing her best to make her parents understand her situation, but it really took hearing it from other adults to actually sink in.
1: Things started to turn around for me quite a bit in high school. Um, Number one, I finally convinced my parents to transfer me out of the school that I was in and send me to a nearby school, which was significantly larger. It was still only 100 kids per class, but that's really huge compared to where I came from. The other big thing was that my junior year of high school, my mom actually took it upon herself to find this program in Boston, ironically, with a Jocelyn Diabetes Clinic. Jocelyn is like the world renowned place to go if you have diabetes. It's very famous for, you know, excellent care. And they had this program for teenagers, like preteens and teenagers and their families. And that was the important part was that it was a family unit program and not just the kid with the disease program. So we all my, my parents and I together, not my sister, but we came to Boston for three days and did this like intense outpatient program. It was there that the doctors kind of, I mean nicely, but pretty much chastised my parents for being as uninvolved as they were. And they basically said, she's gonna go to college pretty soon and she's gonna be completely burnt out and lost and you need to step up and take on some of the burden of this disease for her you need to support her and it can't be like everybody else getting one thing and her getting another thing. And they really didn't mean to take my side in it. They they were really just doing what they thought was best for like patient centered care but i remember to me feeling like that was the first time that i felt like holy crap like the world is not on me and it's it's going to be okay and um and that someone was actually getting through to my parents cuz it wasn't just me yelling at them saying like it's not fair or i don't want to do this anymore or whatever and i think it was really important at that time because as a teenager it's really really easy to have an eating disorder with diabetes cuz all you have to do is stop taking your insulin and you'll be skinny in no time as I found out earlier you know it's easy to just stop taking shots because who wants to do that right so it was really important to me that my mom actually took it upon herself to convince my dad and I to go to this program and the and the program was really super really really great And so I kind of credit that for like a lot of turnaround. And then when I went to college, I did feel like I had a better foundation and that we were all more on the same page. And it started to give me a more positive outlook on it. You know, as I've evolved into an adult, my relationship with it has definitely improved. To the sense that I now recognize that like pretty much everybody's got something, and this is just my something. It's always hard. I mean, every day is hard. Like in terms of how much insulin do I take? What am I eating? How much carbohydrate does that have in it? And how much? What what are my ratios? And what's going to be my regimen for the day? And what are my hormones doing today? And um, it's just a lot of mental energy to make very basic decisions that other people take for granted. But I'm still healthy, and I'm still able to live a good life. And ironically, now that I live in Boston, I get my care from Jocelyn and it's kind of come full circle in that way, which is kind of cool. And I think my biggest fear... With being diabetic, and this is something that you know, I heard even when I was 11, I remember the nurses saying to me, oh, you're going to be have, have to be so careful when you have children and oh, you know, they, they can come out all deformed and then like you see still magnolias and you think like, oh, having a kid kills you. Like getting pregnant and having a kid was really terrifying to me and I, I wasn't sure I wanted to do It turned out in reality that my pregnancy was wonderful. And it was probably one of the best things to happen to me. And my son is like incredible, came out incredibly healthy. And I put a lot of work into my pregnancy. And so I was really, really proud of that. And then I actually enrolled him in a study at Jocelyn and a nationwide study looking at autoantibodies in children of diabetics to see if he was more prone to developing diabetes because I was really scared about that. He had to get some blood work taken when he was a baby. The blood work came back and said he had no autoantibodies and his risk of de- developing diabetes was almost nothing. Like that's probably one of the biggest like accomplishments in my life. I mean, it's, it's not an accomplishment. I don't know what to call it. it. It was one of the biggest relief moments of my life. Like I could have this disease, but it doesn't have to like be a part of my legacy. And so that was really like kind of full circle for me, like learning to live with it in a way that was still positive and still like, I'm not a bad person for it or I'm not gonna harm someone else. That my work, all the work I put into staying healthy produced him, which is is pretty cool.
0: Carolyn finally had her family's support. And while she still deals with her illness every single day, she doesn't have to face her battle alone. Before we get to part two of Carolyn's story, I asked her to give advice to those who were recently diagnosed or who had a loved one who was.
1: I think what I want people with, you know, who who get diagnosed with type one or who have a loved one who is diagnosed with type one is to kind of take a deep breath because a, its cause is still largely unknown. I mean, they're doing a ton of great research and they're... They're whittling away at possibilities, but we know it's an autoimmune condition. We know something in the body turns against itself and destroys certain cells that produce insulin, but there's nothing identified in terms of a specific trigger and that is not your fault. Like there's nothing specific that you did wrong, at least that we know of at this point. Like There's some theories about it being viral, a viral trigger or an environmental trigger and that you have to have certain genetic predisposition for it. But I think, you know, the whole confusion with type 2 diabetes is is just really hard for people to understand, but you have to really educate yourself that this disease is autoimmune, it's not a lifestyle disease, it's like, you've got to hold fast that this is not your fault. And I think the other big thing is like, just one thing I've kind of learned throughout this whole journey of almost 30 years with this condition is like, people are ignorant and that's not really their fault either. I mean, when you talk to me about other conditions in the world, I'm extremely ignorant. I think it's just no human can really know everything about everything. And it sucks that people say stupid things because they do. But the best thing I learned to do was to come up with like a 30 second elevator pitch or, or education pitch where I could boil down everything essential that I knew to like impart to someone as quickly as possible in a way that is not snarky or, or sarcastic, which is really hard to do by the way, because snark and sarcasm are definitely like part of my personality, but I think it is important to try and like meet people where they are because it's the only way people are going to listen to you and it's the only way people are going to care. And I think the other thing I would want people to know is that one of my, like the biggest, most important moments in my life was when the Affordable Care Act passed kind of a weird thing to say but I grew up my whole childhood knowing that I was not equal under the law and that the law did not treat me equally with regard to access to medicine and care and that if my parents didn't have insurance I wouldn't have gone to a hospital and I wouldn't have gone to Jocelyn and I wouldn't have you know we would have paid out of pocket for insulin or, or whatever and it make it made me mad like it made me mad that the people who need things the most are the ones that are barred from getting it if they're not in very specific good situations with insurance wise. And so having the affordable care act pass and say that you can't be turned down because of a pre-existing condition that was it was sort of like my version of marriage equality, like that was very very important to me. I think even people in my family don't understand that. I, I wish they would because I feel like I have a lot to give in life and I feel like I deserve it. I feel like I deserve, everybody deserves it. You know, like this shouldn't bar you from living your life. And then I think like the biggest thing that I've been learning, especially with my son and having my son and being pregnant is like put in the work. Like, It sucks. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of hard work. It's a lot of frustrating work and like it'll bring you down to your knees and you will probably have many days where you you know wish you weren't you were doing anything else but just like put one foot in front of the other and do the work because you can do great you can you can be really healthy and you can do really great things in life and now I mean you're seeing now like football players with type 1 diabetes and, and Olympians and ultramarathoners and it's not it's not a death sentence like you just have to accept that this is part of the hard work that you do in life and that's somehow I guess if there's a blessing to come out of it, it's that it makes you a pretty disciplined person. You can't afford to screw around. In that sense, it's a good thing. It's forcing me to take care of myself and and be in a good place.
0: Just two years after Carolyn and her family visited the Jocelyn Center in Boston, it was time to leave for college. Carolyn had big dreams for her future, which in her junior year took her overseas, where part two of our story begins.
1: I majored in language. Um, my original idea was I wanted to be a UN interpreter. I thought that would be super cool. Never mind that I didn't really speak any more than like some broken Spanish and, you know, my native language. <laughs> But I had this idea that I was gonna do this. And so I was majoring in Spanish and I wanted to learn French. And so I decided to do this study abroad program for a year, um, half in France and half in Spain, and I got accepted to it. And so uh, my junior year of college, I arrived in France on September 1st of 2001 to great fanfare, I was very excited. And of course, like 10 days later, was absolutely terrified when um, I realized I was living in the Arab quarter of Lyon, France, and that I could no longer speak English in the streets without being. A target. So it was a really scary time. It was a time where there was just a lot of uncertainty in the world um, and realizing that the country was going to war and there was internal politics with everything, even like my roommate um, who was Australian. It was just a very scary time. So it didn't really help that I, I joined this choir in the university in France and I went with a friend of mine who was from the same university back home. We loved going to choir practice together, and so we were walking home from choir practice one night. We took the Metro, and he and another friend and I came up out of the Metro. I don't know if you know that movie, the Remember, Remember the 5th of November. I will never forget the 5th of November because that was the night that um, it happened. We walked up out of the metro and um, my friend Rodrigo went one way and his flat was you know, to the left and then Keegan and I, my friend from school, we went the other way. I remember there was like a little tram that was next to us and that we could have taken this um, tram a couple blocks. Further, but you know, I was like, oh, it's a nice enough night out. Let's just walk. It's five blocks, big deal. And I was like, Keegan, go on without me. You don't, you don't need to worry about me. And he goes, no, a Texan always walks his woman home, which is funny in that we weren't dating and um, he's gay. So that statement was very funny, and we were laughing about it. And I was like, okay, Keegan, like you can walk me home. And no sooner had he said that than I, I looked over to my left, and about ten yards away from me, on my left side. I see this white and brown, like white with brown spots, kind of mastiff-looking bulldog. Really small for what I, like, not like a pit bull size, but, but shorter and squatter, but very, like, aggressive-looking, like like, straining on the leash, eyes narrowed, like, mouth open. And I just remember looking at the dog and, like, feeling something, like, something like fear and turning back to Keegan on my right and, like, just kind of pretending I didn't, I hadn't like seen that. And I kept walking and we took a couple more steps and I turned my head back to the left and the dog was in my face. So the dog's face was level with my face. And I stopped short and like pulled back and I I remember I grabbed Keegan's arm. And the crazy part about this is this dog was on a leash and the guy had him taut on this leash and the guy was pulling and that was, that was the thing that saved my face is that the guy pulled on this leash at just the moment that the dog jumped to my face. And so it lowered him down enough where what he actually caught onto was my left leg. And it just happened very fast from there. This dog like sank his teeth around my knee, took me down on the ground in like seconds and um, started dragging me along the sidewalk and this is with a guy holding onto the dog trying to pull him off and Keegan like It took Keegan, like, a second to realize what was happening, and he came running after me on the sidewalk. And, like, thank God I had a leather jacket on, so, like, my top half didn't, like, get too scraped up, and I had a backpack on. And Keegan, like, caught up to me and planted his feet by my face, and I was holding on to his leg, like, with my arms and burying my leg, or my my face and his leg and the dog was just ripping on my leg and I was screaming at the top of my lungs. My friend Rodrigo that we had just said goodbye to like at the metro stop came running back and it was it was like kind of surreal like in a movie where a crowd forms around you like in a circle but no one wants to touch it which can't say I blame him. I wouldn't want to touch it either but you know the dog never barked dog never made noise and the guy as I'm on the ground and the dog's like ripping my flesh off (laughs) the guy is like trying to kick the dog in the ribs and in the face and Keegan's punching the dog and I'm just screaming bloody murder finally the dog just ripped off everything he'd grabbed onto on my leg and um and the guy took him and, and fled and just was out of there And I I mean, I didn't even see him for like another two seconds. He was just gone and nobody stopped him. And I remember like screaming after him in French, like, you know, like kill him, kill him. And, And what I didn't know then was that Everybody on France loves to go on strike, including, like, the police and, um, you know, like, taxi drivers. (laughs) And it turned out that there was, like, 35 major groups on strike at that particular moment in time, including the police. And so there was just no help to be found. The one thing that really stuck with me in the moment, because September 11th had just happened, is that there was a shawarma place run by... I'm an Arab guy and I had made a point of avoiding that place for a couple months and that as I the dog left and people are coming forward to like help Keegan pick me up off the sidewalk. The guy who ran the shawarma place brought out a chair from his restaurant and and sat me down and was the first person to be like, I'll call the ambulance. Like, we'll get you help. We'll get you something. He had kind of broken French and I had broken French. And I just remember being like, okay, that is not who I thought would help. But that I was very grateful for his help. And that's probably the question I get asked the most about it. You know, like, what did you do? And not even like people accusing me of doing something, but just like, what was it? And my only, the only thing I can come up with, because I think some people legit think that I did provoke it, which is ridiculous. But the only thing I can think of is that that literally that how I turned my head and looked it in the eyes and I saw it and I and then I turned away I really feel like something about the looking and the looking away was a trigger of some sort maybe like submission I don't know you know I was still screaming after the guy and an ambulance came and uh, Rodrigo stayed there and Keegan left with me in the ambulance and I remember I got in the ambulance and I was trying to ask the workers if it was bad. Like I didn't, I hadn't even seen my leg. Like I didn't even know what was happening. And the workers were like, "No, no, sepakov. Like it's not bad. It's no big deal." And Keegan was like, "Yeah, Carolyn, it's not bad at all. Don't worry about it." I was sitting up trying to look, and then one of the ambulance workers was like, "Yeah, no, it's actually pretty bad." (laughs) And, And me like sitting up to look and Keegan being like, "Shut up!" And we got to this hospital and. I, I don't know what they gave me in the ambulance, but it must have been pretty good stuff, because I don't remember being in pain at that point. But we got to this hospital, and there were all these people in the waiting room. And I remember thinking I would have to wait a long time. And there was this big hubbub when I checked in, and suddenly, like, I was the first one in line. And that's kind of when I realized, like, oh, something's bad here, because all these people have been waiting in the ER, and and now I'm first. And I remember a woman coming up to me with, like, her finger in a sling and being like, oh, my finger is all messed up, and why do you get to go first? And, like, people having to, like, hold her back from, <laughs> from coming at me. And I was just, like, loopy and out of it at that point. Um, and so they took me back and I remember they like ripped my pants off. Like, and then I, it was that point that I realized my pants were all in shreds anyway. And cause I was like, how dare you rip my pants? And then they held them up and they were just like tatters. It's like, Oh, okay. <laughs> and, and then they took me for prep for surgery. And this had been a, a world war two allied fort at some point, like during the, the second world war. And so beneath these like 26 buildings of the hospital there are all these underground tunnels and so they took the stretcher down into the underground tunnels and they were wheeling me all around and that was just another very surreal moment of like where am i going i'm in the twilight zone what's happening to me and i remember they were testing the nerves in my leg to make sure the nerves hadn't been severed and so they were at one point sending electric shocks down my leg and me just thinking like oh crap like this is it like Um, I don't even know what they're doing. This is crazy. And I didn't you know they were speaking really fast. And, um, you know, I went into surgery and I didn't really know what I was going into surgery for. I didn't really know what was wrong. And um, I just remember having laughing gas and thinking things were funny. And then I woke up in this recovery room and I remember waking up and not being able to feel my leg. And I reached my hand down and I, I just felt something hard but I couldn't like actually feel my leg and um I remember thinking like, oh, oh shit, like I've lost my leg, like it, it was that bad. And luckily it wasn't. It was just really numb. But I woke up and the, the surgeon was there with the nurses, and they were all smoking and drinking wine in the recovery room. So at that point I thought, oh, like I really have lost my leg. I've lost my whole body. Like I'm dead. Like there were drunk people operating on me. And um, that's the difference between France and the United States, I suppose. And so I was just really hazy and. I remember a nurse coming over and asking if I was okay and me just not really responding, not really understanding. And she took my blood tester from the side of my bed, which somehow they had found. And she did a blood test and she was like, oh, mon dieu, like, like oh my God, it's so bad. You know, And she didn't tell me the number. And then the next time I saw her, she came back with the needle and I asked her what it was and she said it's insulin. And it was just pulled way out. Like you could see the syringe, like, holds way farther out than I would any bigger dose than I would ever give myself like this massive dose of insulin and I somehow in my fog was like stop and she's like your blood sugar is out of control like it's so high it's it's incredibly high you will die and I was just like you like I'll die if you give me that shot like that is a massive amount of insulin we argued gosh for like a minute solid about this. And she said, well, this is what the doctors ordered for you. And I said, the doctor's trying to kill me. Like, well, what are you doing? And I finally asked what my blood sugar was. And she said, it's 222. And if you remember, you know, I told you when in, I went in the hospital when I was a kid, it was 777. So to me, 222, I was like, okay, I can handle this. It's double what it needs to be, but that's manageable. And she goes no no 222 is like off the charts and i finally realized she was using a totally different measurement system and she was talking about millimoles and i was talking about milligrams per deciliter and my my machine was in milligrams per deciliter and so they were compensating for just a number that didn't make any sense and i finally i didn't even i didn't even know to like articulate that in the moment but i said to her i said you will kill me and this will be horrible and so she finally like threw the needle down and she was like will you take care of yourself then and I said fine I will like don't touch me with any needles that have insulin in them so I struck a deal with them to like let me manage my diabetes and they could manage my leg and it was at that point that I was like oh and do I even have a leg like what's going on (laughs) it just turned out that the dog had ripped off like a bunch of muscle and somehow miraculously avoided tendons most of my nerves And my kneecap. The lower canine had gone in below the kneecap and the upper canines had gone in above the kneecap. And um, they thought the kneecap was going to pop off. But miraculously, like it kind of avoided everything major. So I I learned that, you know, in the next like 24 hours that I was going to be okay and that the leg was meant to recover and it was just kind of messy. And so from that point on, it was really just a mental game. And, um, I think they recognized that. They sent me a psychiatrist in the hospital. It was probably like day five that I was in the hospital. I was there for 10 days in the hospital in France. And the psychiatrist came in and he was an old guy with a bow tie. And um, he like asked me my name and what I was studying and then basically fell asleep. (laughs) <laughs> and I was like, cool, is this supposed to help somehow? And it, it was kind of a bad time, because at that point I didn't even really know what had happened and I, I didn't even know to be scared. I mean, I was scared, but I didn't know what I was scared of. It was just one of those like, okay, I'm here in the hospital and I don't know when I get to go home. And I don't really know, I hadn't seen the wound. I hadn't seen how, what it looked like. So I was just kind of like, okay, I'm I'm here. And I've got mesh underwear on and there's a cute Italian doctor like staring at me in my mesh underwear and that's great. But otherwise, the hospital, like, was pretty okay. It was, like, they took good care of me. And and it wasn't until I got, oh, there was one funny thing. Um, I, I told them they had to get me a rabies shot because I was like, I don't know if this dog was rabid. And they thought I was totally crazy. But I insisted on it. And so they ended up putting me back in an ambulance at one point and, like, driving me all over the city to find a clinic with a rabies shot, which I thought was the funniest thing in the world. That, like, why couldn't they just bring the shot to the hospital? I don't know. So this wound on my leg... Well, when it happened, um, the rip, if you will, there's a, a rip that goes from the outside of my knee, like sort of like along where if you follow the line where your IT band would be on the outside of your leg and you follow it down to like that knobby outside bone in your knee, the rip kind of starts there and it's about five to six inches long up the first third of my thigh and then it goes into about the very top of my thigh. When I say he like ripped off my skin, he literally ripped it off in this like really weird square pattern. I thought I would need a bunch of stitches, but in fact, they didn't put a lot of stitches in. I only had seven stitches for the whole wound. The two top canines left holes that were about an inch deep. The bottom canine, they sewed that one up with three stitches, and it kind of now looks like a little butterfly scar. And then the 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 rip left like a bunch of my skin just kind of hanging off my leg and so basically they just tried to like very carefully pat that back on and very delicately like stitch it back on so i only have four stitches on that whole big like l-shaped rip what took so long for it to heal was they just wanted to it to heal organically from the inside out while it was you know covered so it would stay clean and to their credit it worked you know the holes are only like a quarter inch deep now more or less like you can feel that there's holes there and you can feel that there's muscle missing in my leg you know it just looks like a big weird l-shaped scar with a couple holes now when it first happened um when i woke up and you know i think i mentioned it was like five days before i saw the wound after i had the surgery um the first time i saw it i almost passed out that was pretty gross because i could see like all open oozy muscle and grossness. So I didn't really look at it very much for a very long time. And the first picture I took of it was like three weeks after it happened when I was in outpatient and I was going back to get it cleaned out like every other day. It was ugly, but, but not like probably nothing worse than you see on a, a movie, I guess. And so it wasn't until like I got out of the hospital and they sent me home that I just realized like oh I can't do anything like I couldn't go up and down stairs. Uh, my leg was in a full brace and I couldn't really take the metro very easily so I had to like try and get a cab to school and even that I didn't go to school for like another week um, and then when I did get to school they made me walk up a flight of stairs to give me the key for the elevator because <laughs> that's grants for you there were just a lot of like weird things they wanted me to get my blood work done all the time and I had to walk all over the city to get that done it was just really inconvenient and then I had to go back to the hospital like every other day to get my wound redressed the wound was pretty disgusting and they had to like dig out the scabs every time I went in because the way it had to heal they wanted the inside to heal before the outside so basically they took a knife and reopened the wound every time i went in that was pretty terrible i think people didn't understand how hard the mental part was that like you know the physical part was hard getting on crutches or just like lugging around this huge brace or you know not having moved in the hospital for 10 days you lose a lot but the really hard part was the mental part that i was i got home and i all of a sudden realized like i was terrified to go outside I was just kind of terrified of everything. I just didn't know what had happened. And luckily, Keegan was, like, my best friend during that time. And he actually took me to the police station and filed a report. And he um, took me to the bank and, like, got me money. And he did my grocery shopping for me. And I don't think it's a mistake that I married a guy from Texas. Probably originated with him. But it was just really... The only way i got through it was to rely on him a lot and some other people i think that mental part was really hard when my roommate um i had we had a loft in our apartment and i could no longer climb up to the loft to sleep so we had to bring my bed down into the kitchen like my mattress and so i was sleeping in the kitchen and she would like come and sit on my bed as if it were just like another couch I don't know, I was just really resented that. And then she would just be like, oh, you're so dramatic. Like, why don't you wanna go outside? What's your problem? She just really, like, she started to dislike me because I was crying all the time. And I was like, do you not understand what just happened to me? Like, I, I came here to learn languages and I'm I'm like getting my leg ripped apart every two days. Like, do you not even get this? And she was just like, oh, stop being dramatic. I had a boyfriend back home at the time and I called him and I I asked him to come. And he said that he couldn't afford to come and that he would see me, you know, when he planned to see me, which was at Christmas time. Um, and I said, Well, I can't, I don't even think I can travel home for Christmas. Like, I can't stay on a flight across the Atlantic. Like, I don't think I can do that. He said at one point when I was crying, he was like, I want, I want to be clear. I don't, I don't pity you. I said, Well, you need to fucking pity me. Like, I want your pity. Like, I want anything you can give me right now. And it was also bullshit because September 11th had happened and prices were at rock bottom. Like, <laughs> there was no way if you couldn't afford a trip to Europe then you could never afford it and then with my parents like they had actually just been to visit me before the attack had happened they had left about three days prior to the attack and um, had gotten laid up in Amsterdam and so they actually got home like 36 hours before the attack happened and so they didn't come back and so it was again just a very isolating experience where Keegan was like the only person who really was really nice to me and really kind to me and really helpful and then a lot of people made fun of me for it and I thought like are you kidding me like and, and that continued for a long time. The good news was that it ended up healing really, really well. The the hospital did a great job. And my leg is like fully functional now. I just have a really funky scar. But the the mental part like went on for years. And it's kind of the hardest to forgive people because that's where they can be the biggest assholes. But it's also the part where you just realize that until somebody's gone through something like that, it's apparently very easy to be an asshole because uh, it's so common. It's not like a few people, it, it's literally everybody. I got so many comments about, oh, if it was such a small dog why couldn't you fight it off? And I'm like, do you understand? There were two full grown men like beating on this dog, and these dogs are bred to take down bulls. That's why they're called bulldogs. And you just want to scream at them and be like, what do you not understand about not being the size of a bull or, or or bigger? And then you just realize they have no clue, they have no context for how powerful animals can be. So the mental part was definitely the hardest because the biggest part I found was that like people would want me to be around their dogs to like see how great dogs were. Were and like cure me of my fear and you know it's like oh I know some dogs are like that but my dog would never and then I'm like you don't know what your dog would do it's, so it, it was just a lot of trying to justify that I didn't want to be in this company or that I didn't want to be put in a certain situation and then you know like when my ex-boyfriend did come to visit me we were walking down the street well hobbling and walking and, and a poodle went by us like a standard poodle and I, I flipped my shit. And, and he laced into me, and he was like, what is your fucking problem? It was actually one of my girlfriends that was that was helpful at the time. She was like, no, what's your fucking problem? And she said that to my ex-boyfriend. I don't know. I should have dumped him there and then, but I didn't. So my friend Keegan took me to the police to file a, a report, and um, we went through a database. Oh, gosh. I want to say we went through 500 faces. I don't know. It was a lot. It was dark when it happened. It was like 9 p.m. when it actually had happened. And so, and the guy had like, it was winter, you know, it was cold. So the guy had had like a winter hat on. All I knew was, I think he was white and he had like a beard and he was kind of shaggy and that's kind of all I had to go on. He was skinny. So like, I didn't really have a memory of the guy's face. And so going to the police, it was really hard for me to give an accurate account. In France, there's also a bunch of laws around pit bulls and, and bulldogs. They require them to be neutered or spayed. And if they're not, they need to be muzzled and they have to be registered with the city. And, and it was very clear from searching the database that it was none of those things. Like, this dog was an underground dog of some sort. And that's when I learned from the police that underground fighting was a huge problem in France. So I cannot watch Amores Perros, even though I like the actor in that very much. But I, the beginning of that is a is a, a dog fighting scene. and. Uh, That gets me every time because I think about what this dog probably went through and what this dog, what the dog's life was probably like, and it it doesn't give me a pretty picture. Um, So, no, they never found him. What was kind of crazy about that is that in France, within that year that I was there, I read articles about a guy in Italy getting his arms ripped off by a pit bull. And um, it was famously, I think, the year after like when I was back in the States, that a woman in France had her face ripped off by her dog and they did a face transplant on her. It was a really famous case worldwide. And that was also roughly the time when I think it was out in Oakland or or San Francisco, a girl uh, was attacked and killed by two pit bulls that were left out in the hallway of her apartment complex. That was another famous U.S. case. And this was all happening around... And so, of course, when something happens to you, you tend to... You suddenly recognize it happening everywhere. And um, that's what I saw in France... Shortly after I left, within a couple years, they actually passed a victim law, which entitled victims of violent crime to compensation from the state, partly because these things are so hard to solve. I went on to Spain, I, I ended up like finishing physical therapy in France and I I did all the care and then my sister came to visit me over Christmas and I ended up going to Spain and just like pushing on through the year and I just remembered it's kind of like being diabetic I remember thinking like just one foot in front of the other and literally that's that's what you do every single day you just put one foot in front of the other and and it'll get better. physically I was recovered in probably about seven months and then mentally like the next year so the next fall so almost a year after it had happened I was back at my university for my senior year and someone finally convinced me to go see a psychologist and I was like well the last psych I had fell asleep and they were like no you needed to go and so I went to student health services and for all the crap that student health services gets this particular psychologist I had was really pretty amazing and he did I think someone had described it here before but he did some kind of technique called cognitive retraining or something like that and you you have to visualize the whole event like a movie and you have to talk about it and talk about it and talk about it and play it over and over and over and over like a movie and you have to take out color and sound and you have to inject like you have to pretend that people were there that weren't there and you have to pretend the dog was a different color or the leash was a different color or... and in the end it's supposed to like distance your mind from it as if it happened in a movie and not happened to you directly it's very hard to go through like it's very hard to actually talk about it that much and to put yourself through it but I did find that like I would walk out of his office I could walk by a dog and not flip and so I kept doing it and um and it helped I mean it helped a lot it helped where I could actually like you know the story I told you about how the dog attacked me I I think I'm pretty sure it's like at least 80% true but with all the cognitive retraining and like details that I've inserted and had like that he had me like maybe it's only like 50% true. Like, I'm pretty sure the dog was white with a brown spot over its left eye, but maybe not. I have like the papers to refer back to. I know it was a bulldog and that was reported, but it does feel a lot more distant. And so that was a big help. And I did not meet my goal of becoming a UN translator, shockingly. Although my French was pretty good, my medical French. After like three months of hospital in and out, I was Pretty damn fluent. But because I had been in the French hospital system, one of the things I kept asking there was, How am I going to pay for this? Because in the US system, I would have been like broke. And they kept saying this phrase, like, No, no, tout est pris en charge. And I was like, I don't know what that means. Well, it basically meant I had paid Social Security on the way into the country and they covered it. They covered everything. I didn't, I think I paid a hundred bucks for like, the surgery, the hospital stay, the outpatient drugs, the rehab, the everything. I think based on that experience, I became extremely interested in health systems and uh, got back to school and my senior year, I started volunteering with the North Carolina Department of Public Health on some health projects and I took a couple classes in the School of Public Health. Finally got into public health services research and um, ended up getting my grad degree in public health and health administration and policy. And so now that's that's what I spent 10 years of my career on, is the American health system for what it is. Not that I want it to be exactly like the French system, because obviously the rabies, like getting in an ambulance to go get a rabies shot, or like having to walk two miles to get a blood draw when you're like in a leg brace and crutches, and then having to go somewhere else for rehab and return to the hospital, that was just a mess. So it's not like I want everything to be like a different system, but... I think I would say I just spent my career really recognizing how our system punishes the people who need the most help. I carried pepper spray with me for a long time whenever I went out. I had several more like freak out episodes. If I saw a pit bull, I would cross the road or I would um, turn a corner or, or I would jump in a car or like anything that I could do to like wait until that dog passed. And then that that went on for like several years, like maybe a decade it was 2012 yeah it was 2012 so it was 11 years i was in california i was living in la and i was um, considering a move back to washington dc and i talked to a girlfriend of mine she was living there and and i said well i have this job offer and i'm thinking about coming back there and she and her husband were getting ready to leave for the foreign service and she said well why don't you come live with me and we had been roommates before and it had been great and i was like i would love to live with you that's awesome and then i saw on facebook that she had gotten a a rescue pit bull I, I wasn't talking to her you know when this happened but I like flipped out in my head and I was like I cannot live with a pit bull like what the hell like how, how could she do th-? and I felt very like personally aggrieved like how could she do this to me right and so I finally worked up the nerve to call her and talk to her about it and I was like you know I, I just don't know and she knew like what had happened to me and she said I want to reassure you that this dog is the kindest dog and we give her a ton of exercise every day and she will love on you and you know the worst she will ever do is like lick you and I I was kind of like tempted to be like, you know, I've heard this before, but she was one of my best friends. So I was kind of like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to believe you. And I remember my mom and I drove across country with all my stuff in my car and we pull up to her house in DC and I remember getting out of the car and just being terrified and my mom saying, are you sure you want to do this? And I was like, no, I'm not sure. (laughs) I'm not sure I want to live here. I knocked on the door and the dog came and was barking at the door and I couldn't see her. And my friend came and opened the inner door and there was still a screen door and I just saw this big pit bull and, I was, and she was barking and I was like freaking out and she put Saffron the dog in a kennel opened the door and like Safi was barking and and she goes okay I want to introduce you to her and this is how we're gonna do it and it went pretty well and a um, long story short I lived with that dog for four and a half months and I think she cured me she was awesome she was an amazing dog she was so sweet she would like sleep on my lap I would go running with her and it was like the last thing that made me realize that The dog is a reflection of the owner and the dog in france had to have been like a an underground fighting dog or a drug dog or something i mean dogs just don't behave like that and so safi was was a really good therapy dog for me she was really awesome and kind of got me to love dogs again which i thought would never happen
0: carolyn had survived she spent years trying to heal the emotional wounds caused by her illness only to be thrown right back down in the hole of those emotions after her attack. Isolation has played such a prominent role in Carolyn's life, but so has the way that she has responded to it. Carolyn's leg healed. Her illness was under control, and with the help of Safi, Carolyn was moving forward with her trauma. At this point, I asked Carolyn the question that we've all asked ourselves at some stage. Now what?
1: That's a great question. First and foremost, being diabetic and having this freak accident taught me that life is very fragile and you can't take anything for granted. As I said before, I'm happy every day that I've put in the work and that I've gotten good outcomes for the most part. Again, what's the alternative? You know, The alternative is is depressing and sad and no one wants to hear that you didn't keep going. And so you have to be your own best friend and pick yourself up and put in the work and you don't want to consider the alternative. You want to keep people coming to you. And I realized I I don't want to leave the world without leaving my own mark. So the the second part, you know, is just what's my motivating factors and having a child did turn out to be a motivating factor for me and wanting to be better and do better and to get better and to stay healed and to heal other areas of my life as well. And I think about that every day of, did my parents give me their best? Probably, but what can I do better for my child? And how can I put him in a better place, you know, to avoid isolation? How can I teach him all sorts of boundaries around technology and Netflix and social media and interacting with people. Um, How can I make sure he's not isolated? How can I teach him the right lessons? So I think about my legacy through him and what kind of mom I wanna be. And then I think a lot about legacy. I think about, well, Now what in terms of, well, I want to keep working in the health field. I want to keep the science moving forward so that there's hopefully a cure one day. I've thought a lot about lately enrolling myself in clinical trials. There's a lot in the Boston area to to do that with and how to be a part of solutions in that sense, how to push things forward, but also raise my voice so that it's done in the right way. Then for me personally, you know, you and I talked a lot about isolation. And I think a lot of what a lot of trauma boils down to is a sense of isolation or whether it's real or imagined or geographic. And I've noticed that as an adult, that I'm happier when I have an active social life. Uh, I'm happier when I am accepting help and I'm engaging with people. And so I've become part of a mom's group. I'm part of a writer's group because I love to write. I've gotten involved in political groups and church groups and just making sure that I am trying to be socially engaged as much as possible has really helped me realize, one, that everybody's got something, but two, that sharing it with other people and sharing my life with other people makes it better. You know, now what is about teaching? I think I talked earlier about don't expect others not to be ignorant. Um, Everybody's ignorant about something, and it's just an unfortunate consequence of the world being complex, maybe. My best answer is do your part to be ready to educate people about your situation Mm -hmm. as much as you can. So, for example, the medical error that happened to me in France, it turns out there's an entire (laughs) report on this issue for the United States. It's the National Academy's publication called uh, To Air is Human, and it was first published in 1999, and it came out to great fanfare about how up to 98,000 deaths in the U.S. alone are caused by potential medical error in hospitals. What I have learned is that my situation is unfortunately not uncommon. It's not an aberration. It's the norm. And we have to be extremely vigilant about that problem. And we, you know, these are more deaths than people die in car wrecks, for example, or or other top causes of death combined. So never assume that you're in good hands just because you're in an expert's hands. You know, really make sure you have some vigilance over your own situation. I think teaching people about what their rights are, what they can demand from certain providers or certain, the healthcare system, I think is really important um, because unfortunately we're just not in a place where safety is guaranteed with that. And then teaching is so important to me, especially with my son, but with other people. We are all going to be ignorant, but I can teach my son about empathy and I can teach him to be a kind and empathetic person who tries to ask questions rather than make assumptions or opening his mouth with something unkind before he tries to understand a situation. So there's a lot that I think about in terms of how I respond to people. Am I giving them the benefit of the doubt and am I trying to understand where they're coming from? And that has changed a lot, I would say, in the past 10 years. I think I've become better at being patient and thinking through the other side before I cut in. And I think that's something that Most people who go through a traumatic thing, if they're really thoughtful about it, they should come away with. And the biggest change is that Wesley loves dogs and he's asking for a dog (laughs) and I'm actually considering it. And I think that's a huge step for us. We've come a long way as a family where I'm actually excited about and happy to consider a dog and in our future.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of You Survived, Now What? Please subscribe so you don't miss an episode. This show is created, hosted, and produced by me, with cover art by my rad dad, Max McLaren, and original music and editing from Evan Nill. If you would like to be a guest or share your story, using your name or anonymously, please email your story to yousurvivednowwhat at gmail.com. Follow us on Facebook or on Instagram at ysnw podcast. Tune in each week to laugh with us, cry with us, and survive with us. And remember to never tell anyone it could be worse. I survived. I survived. I survived. Now what?
1: Do your part to be ready to educate people about your situation.